Hello, listeners. Uh, we're going to cut the chase a little bit this episode because uh, we've brought some uh, two very uh, interesting guests onto the show for this week. Uh, haven't we, Dormson? We have indeed. Um, it took a bit of wrangling to... Well, actually, not that much wrangling. I don't know. Frank did it. All, a little bit. Little all bit I had to do was wake up early, so it wasn't that hard. And I actually would normally be running my uh, Unknown Armies game in this time slot. So, <laughs> uh, since uh, one of them has made themselves known with his uh, chuckle, uh, would you two gentlemen like to introduce yourselves? Uh, this is Greg Stolze. Uh, this is John Scott Tynes. And I'm sure pretty much anyone listening to this show probably knows who t- these two guys are. So, yeah, we've brought... Greg and John on to have a chance to talk about their wonderful little game that we've been discussing for some time now. Well, this is uh, this is a big episode for you guys. Which this this was like an anniversary episode, or what was the? I remember you saying you were celebrating something, but I can't remember what it was. Three years of doing three this. Years. Three years. Three years. So yeah, that is of not course. a small investment. <laughs> no, you, and for three with this game, you gotta do something with that. Three right? years as the world's only dedicated unknown armies podcast, with a dedicated listener base of about a hundred people. But still, that's a hundred's pretty good. So I'm satisfied with that. Considering uh, I've known this game has always been had a very niche but dedicated fan base. So like to be able to become known in that fan base uh, has been very rewarding and very interesting, as one might imagine. Well, you guys do a great job, um, and I uh, <laughs> particularly enjoyed your crossover with the Green Box podcast. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the Thank worlds you. collided there. That was pretty great. Um, but yeah, it's a, you guys do a great show. It's really, I've, I've listened to several episodes, and it's, uh, it's a really good time. Oh, thank you. So yeah, we got a few questions for you guys. We've had some issues given an elevator pitch for all this in the past in a succinct way <laughs> of like recruiting players or really just trying to explain anyone what our deal is. So in your guys' own words, how do you explain all this succinctly? What is your elevator pitch for Unknown Armies? We worked on this with 3rd Edition. There was like a whole lengthy meeting and all these emails flying back before we landed on a role-playing game about broken people conspiring to fix the world. Because, thank thank the team. Um, I think it was uh, uh, Tidball, uh, you know, contributed to that. And so there was a, there was a lot going on. Um, and, oh, I'm going to kick myself for forgetting his name. The the New Zealand fellow with the beard and the grave demeanor. You mean Cam Banks? There it is. This is why. Oh yeah. This is why Banks, John and I are a good pair. <laughs> <laughs> when um, when one right. of us fails, the other swoops in. That's right. So it's, it's a baton race. <laughs> We just constantly argue about which one of us is MJ and which one of us uh, is you know, the the guy with all the tattoos, Dennis Rodman. Oh, you know, you said MJ. I thought. <laughs> yeah, I was like, who's Spider Man? Spider Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Which one? Yes, which... We're always arguing about which one of us is Michael Jackson and which one of us is Tito. So... Mm-hmm. Dear God. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, no, I think Greg's description is that that's a great encapsulation. Uh, and, you know, it's been a long time since I've tried to explain what Unknown Armies is, I guess. Uh, but um, usually I've talked about, you know, like it's a modern day, like weird occult game um, where you're, you know, um, conspiring and, and fighting with various other members of the occult underground to see who can sort of change the world. Which I realize is not is not like... In this game, you're a ninja, or you know, you're a vampire. Yes. Like it's it's not nearly as uh, as easily resolved as that, which has definitely been a challenge for us from the start. Well, it's been a fiscal challenge, but probably a creative boon. I mean, people because unknown armies is hard to understand. Uh, in you know, it's hard to explain in a page, and so as people get to have things explained to them through play or discover it through play, it's really rewarding. It's like the first time you found out what a vampire was or the first time you read a ghost story. Mm. This is the first time you get this mashing and grinding together of collective social ideas with individual will and and you know backing it all with occult force so it it is definitely an odd and gnomic thing but i think you know i think it repays the attention people put into it Hmm. yeah and i think i mean like in working on it like it was never opaque to us like we knew (laughs) what kind of content to do and what kind of decisions to make and what kind of stories to tell like that all worked um really well um i think in part and i know this is a you know where this this sort of steps into the whole like 90s rpgs versus you know contemporary rpgs now but um the more we worked in the setting and on the cabals and the characters i think they were kind of our way into what this game would be and what it would feel like because the more we knew those people and those those agendas um, that was kind of what the game was about, was like just the way that various people are like clashing and conspiring and allying and, you know, getting together and falling apart um, to do all this stuff. And for me, I know that was kind of how I understood the setting was through the characters and through just more broadly, like the kinds of agendas that players would, would have in the game. It's something I tried to put into third edition too, which is maybe coming across as the shiny happy edition just by virtue of not being the most downbeat depressing toxic edition but one of you know one of the things i made sure to include with you know descriptions of unnatural effects and entities is how can this be exploited it's like you have you have discovered this creature that arises from the grief of desperate tragedy and it is making its miserable way through the back streets of your hometown and i'm like and i know there are player groups where the first question they're gonna ask is what's in this for me how how am i gonna how am i gonna come out of this situation ahead how do we monetize the snow fallen I mean, obviously, it's a cam girl situation. My God. That's first edition, Greg. Yeah, well, there we go. There, you know, there's a continuum. 
when first edition came out, I don't think cam girls existed. I don't think that first woman who said, oh, I'm just going to leave my computer camera on and broadcast everything I do in my room, who was, you know, the, the sort of art project primogenitor cam girl. I don't think she'd started doing that. I mean, not in like a, with a platform where you could get money for that. But Oh, like, certainly not, no. Know, yeah, like our, our friend uh, Ray Winninger, when he worked at 3Com, they made a, like one of the early webcams. It was like a black and white webcam. And it was, it was crazy. Like you can like have video chats with people on the internet and they were demoing <laughs> it for the press and like jumping into video chat rooms. There'd be like eight black and white, you know, like staticky certain or, or other uh, uh, slow frame rate images. And it's like, it's a video chat. And they jumped in there and someone was like masturbating on camera, like right there in front of the press. And it was like, Hey, well, this happens too. <laughs> so, like as as far like as as soon as a human sees another human, I think in many cases their first thought is, "Can I take off my clothes?" And that that just everything goes poorly from there. Wow! So it's just it it's just been there from the be it, literally the original sin right there with video cameras. Amazing. Even before that, even before video cameras, um, in fully text based, like even on the um old French Minitel system. There was the basically chat rooms, um, sex chat rooms. So this is back in like before the internet, internet, the Minitel mm -hmm. system. Um, and it was the same sort of thing, but only through text. And it was, people were making money. Most of them were guys pretending to be women, but still. Sure. Yeah. Because who knows what guys want to hear more than guys. Am I right, guys? Um, wow. Yeah. It's like you can, you can take... The technology away from people but you can never remove the humanity from the technology it's mm. but if that was true then something that was made to be pure and beautiful like twitter would be vulnerable to be trans <laughs> to being transformed into some kind of petty avenue for grudges and weird psychological acting out and that can't be that can't be happening can it no no, I know. I remember all the messianic zealotry about the internet, like in the mid '90s, and how like it's going to be free, man. It's going to be amazing. We can connect everyone together. And the problem is, like, the more you connect humanity together, the more you connect humanity together. Uh, which uh, I realized I was going to I was going to say that hey, you know, we're not really talking about unknown armies, but actually we are because that's well, we are. You give a little, you get a little. Um, it is about uh, the the unknown armies. Did it start out? as you know this this metaphorical struggle between mediating the individual and the collective or did it just turn out that way because everything we think about turns out that way good question um i wouldn't say it was that specifically i think that kind of grew up over time i think as the i think you greg brought the concept of avatars to the table as I recall, and that's kind of, I think, where it began to gain more of that particular aspect of the collective. Well, and I mean, I, what I remember, I remember a conversation you and I had ages ago in which I was, you know, I, I was feeling low and I'm like, yeah, I basically feel like I just grabbed your coattails and, uh, you know, glommed on and that all I did for Unknown Armies was, you know, write some fairly simple rules and put things in a little bit of order. And your response was, from my perspective, 
all you did was take a random collection of ingredients and cook a beautiful supper. <laughs> and that, and I'm like, oh, so this is what a good collaboration feels like, is when each of you secretly thinks the other did 70% of the work. Yes, that is the ideal. Is that true for your podcast, guys? Oh, I totally, oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you meant my podcast. No, no I mean our hosts. Do you guys yeah. do 70% of the work? We, we've had that moment. We take turns. <laughs> we take turns. Like, uh, I was in school for a while until relatively recently, and, you know, that takes up time. Then Tormson has stuff going on with his life now, so I've been kind of picking up the slack. And so we, we kind of hand things off to each other as we feel like uh, one of our uh, availability goes down and the other one has... Luckily, it tended to go up around the same time. Which, which of you is the MJ, and which of you is the, <laughs> the person uh-huh. whose initials aren't MJ? I'd say, I'd say Thompson's a Spider-Man. That's list. right. Okay. I'm in Australia, so I'm upside down. You're in well, Australia. There it is. You're upside down. <laughs> Very well acquainted with spiders, of course. I, oh yeah, I, I, and see, I thought you were asking about the the you know, Ludo Narrative Dissidents, the the podcast I'm on, and I'm like, Ross is clearly doing seventy percent of the work. Yeah, that's true. I've heard that I've heard that podcast. <laughs> yeah, James and I just show up to, you know, wave our brandy snifters around and pontificate. It's really the perfect kind of podcast setup. That's awesome. I love that. Living the dream, living the dream. So I mean, uh, well, questions do you have there? Yeah, yeah. To tie it back into, as we're discussing, the horror of humanity, uh, this ties into one of our questions about Anonami's as a kind of reaction to Call of Cthulhu, especially in terms of the mythos um, and the cosmology, um, but also as a reaction to the world of darkness in some way. Like, what do you think of it as more of a reaction to? Well, the the very beginning of it, the seed of it, uh, was actually a reaction to uh, neither directly. Uh, it was um, I had for because of working on collective stuff and just other things I was interested in. I'd spent years learning all about um, like Western Western European like occult conspiracy stuff. You know, the whole like Rosicrucians, Templars, Voynich manuscripts, Theosophists, Golden Dawn, like the Merovingian bloodline of Christ, like that entire nexus of fairly dusty um, historical occult conspiracy stuff. And I knew a lot about that. I was really into it. I was because you know there's there are things that Lovecraft tied into in his work a little bit, like around the the witch trials and stuff like that, and a few things here and there from history. Um, but I was really into that stuff. And then I read uh, Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum, uh, which is a great novel. <laughs> yeah. And I loved it. Favorite of mine. Yeah. And it, it just like, it killed all of that for me. I was just like, well, that's that. <laughs> like, I feel like he had just strip mined that entire genre and trying to write a follow up to that of any kind. Like, what do you, where do you go when Umberto Eco has just like strip mined your genre? So I felt that I needed to just like break away from that stuff. Um, and I was specifically inspired by Lovecraft um, because of the way that he just invented his own cosmology, his own mythology, his own gods and demons and wizards and spells and books and everything else. Um, and a whole secret history that was just entirely like out of whole cloth. Um, it, wasn't, it didn't really owe debts to, you know, there was no like Lovecraftian take on like vampires and werewolves. Like it was just like stuff he made up. Um, and that was what, 
I found really inspiring and kind of liberating to realize like you can just make up your own mythology. You don't have to go toil on someone else's field. Who's gonna stop you? God? Your boss? Those fat cats in Washington? <laughs> exactly. They can't stop us. So that was kind of the, the beginning of it was, um, and certainly, you know, I what I wanted to do when I began messing around with those ideas was very much uh, a contemporary take on occultism and magic um, and very much an American take. I mean, that's that's where I, that's, that was my context. And so I was kind of looking at like, what's America like and what's going on here? And um, just wanted to make it something that felt very contemporary. Uh, and certainly the other inspirations from it, we think, I think you've seen before on your podcast, you talked about it a little bit, you know, there's some David Lynch in there and there's some um, James Elroy novels in there and there's some Tim Powers books in there. and a lot of Tim Powers books in there. Yeah. Uh, that um, was... And also the uh, comic book writer, Grant Morrison, who's uh, Animal Man and Doom Patrol comics in the 90s, were very inspired by, like, chaos magic and kind of contemporary, you know, personal magic. Um, that was all really inspiring and interesting to me as well. And that's kind of what led to the adepts originally. Um, but that's, that, was, that was sort of the deal. Um, certainly looking at the success of Vampire and the World of Darkness books, you know, made me feel like there was a, there was a place for the sort of modern day occult stuff, and broadly speaking, and an audience that had joined the gaming hobby, looking for that kind of content um, in broad in broad terms. So I felt like there was an opportunity there to make something that would be really distinctive and original, and would not be, you know, now let's do mummies, um, and and hopefully you know find an opportunity audience among that group somewhere. Yeah, I will admit, yeah. It, Enough time has probably passed that I could admit that initially I had a negative reaction to the world of darkness that was at least partly jealousy, but also a genuine, I feel, this was before I started working for them and they started paying for my, my rent. Um, but at the time I felt, and I feel this is still a pretty legitimate critique, is that there was this feeling that humanity was the astroturf of the setting. That was the most boring thing you could be was a person. <laughs> and, you know, and that, you know, the best thing you could probably be at that point in the world of darkness was one of the mages who were, they were like people and had all the advantages of people, but they were born special. And I'm like, I really am pretty fed up with born special and so i'm like i you know if, if you want power i want you to work for it i want you to sweat for it and i i had this very strong conviction that and and this was something that the the initial ideas of unknown armies i'm like yeah these two fit together. This is the epic handshake meme before it existed. Is, you know, the idea that you can get it, but you're gonna pay for it. And that... And, and I always tried from jump to have the idea that, yeah, I'm the guy who doesn't want to pay for it, be a legitimate approach. And that was the, the original Alex Abel was the guy who's like, yeah, I don't have magic powers, I have executive function, and I can get along with people, and my life is not strangulated with a series of taboos that seem nonsensical to people who aren't tied up in my sub-1% of the population weird head trip. 
you know, I can get along with people and arrange things and pay bills. And that's in the context of avatars and adepts. That's like being Superman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that I mean, that concept of like, you know, having to work for it. I mean, that's certainly, you know, and at the time looking at where vampire and werewolf and also call of Cthulhu. Um, like I had, the thing I'd come to love about Call of Cthulhu is that unlike the vast majority of role-playing games, which were to me were power fantasies, including the World, World of Darkness stuff, but frankly, like all, like almost all of them are power fantasies. Call of Cthulhu was a powerless fantasy. Like you were not like if if you got better at something in Call of Cthulhu, it probably meant that some other part of you was getting worse at the same time. Um, and I, I just really admired that. Like to me, it was just kind of like the most noble role-playing game because it was not about personal power. It was about personal sacrifice um, and struggling against something that you could never, ever, ever actually defeat. So that, that like Cthulhu kind of ruined me for most other role-playing games as a result, because I just wasn't interested in the idea of like gaining power um, as, a, as a player. Um, and so when Unlit Armies came along, like that was the thing we worked on was making sure that um, like uh, Epidiromancy, the, the flesh mages, like we knew that was inherently like, that's cool, man, that's edgy. You're like, you know, cutting yourself to do stuff or whatever else. And so we really worked to take that school, which was kind of pretty offensive uh, capable and, and could easily be a power fantasy and really tried to tie it into like, you've got a terrible body image and just like really make you feel like if you're going to play this character, then you're going to feel kind of shitty about yourself and you're going to feel like you are so bound up in your own head and your own taboos and your own obsessions that um, you'll understand why as an epidermancer you're not just like the king of New York you, in fact you're probably living like in a box in an alley someplace cutting yourself feverishly to get more power and those trade-offs were so important to us to make sure that this never became a game about becoming a superhero hmm. though I was never quite as allergic to the power fantasy as you were it must be said you know there's there's parts where I'm like this you know, maybe it's cool to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, Greg, no. They're just bullies and jocks. <laughs> what if playing soccer is fun, actually, John? What? What, what if playing lacrosse is a good time? Then why couldn't we beat the Netherlands today? <laughs> so, yeah, that that was sort of... And the, the introduction, we worked together on an early over-the-edge supplement. And so, you know, knew each other. I think that may be the only product that you, me, and Robin Laws worked on together was Myth of Self, which, man, still a great title. Yeah, that was. That might have, we, we might have worked together on some Feng Shui stuff. I can't remember. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. There's got to be, there's got to be something that's got all three of our, something from the, the Daedalus days that has all three of our names in it. Oh, by the way, did I? Uh, did you hear uh, the recent news about Jose Garcia? Um, Rob Hainso told me a bit about Jose because uh, he's bumped into him online or something. I think a couple. Oh, of is times. is it the same Jose? Because I started working with a new writer named Jose Garcia and had to be the one to tell him what his name meant to a certain segment of the game writer employing population. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, no, was, Rob Rob ran really into the, the original Jose Garcia that we knew wow. back in the 90s. Uh, so Daedalus Jose is still alive. 
Oh yeah, he apparently is doing doing fine and has grown up a lot and is in, in no way the person that that was running Daedalus like these Okay. Early. Well, I always I I I never I got real mad at him uh as things got really bad, but I I don't think I was ever as bitter as many others were cuz I did not get burned nearly as badly as many others did, and I always kind of saw him as you know I'm like Jose's first and most prominent victim seems to be Jose, which seemed to be a, a case with a lot of people in the game publishing industry who blew up lives. It's like, you know, yeah, the, they'll wound you, but they, you know, really mangle themselves. Yeah. Well, like the original publisher of Unknown Armies, in fact. <clears throat> I suppose uh, she's doing. I have no clue. That was Archon yeah. Games, I think. Archon, Archon Games with Lisa Mann. And, yeah, that's right. And did they go out of business before they could publish it, or did they just decide to dump it? Uh, they just kind of ghosted us. Um, we had we had signed a deal <laughs> to publish it, and we did. You know, we commissioned all the art and did the layout, and like, and uh, and you know, they've been like, yeah, great. We're talking with them, and then it was like two months before Gen Con, and we were at the pre-press stage, getting ready to send the book off to press for to debut at Gen Con, and Lisa just stopped answering the phone, and and I, and we couldn't pay for the book, of course, like it was her money. And like the last weekend that we could possibly get deliver the files to the printer to get printed and shipped to Milwaukee for Gen Con, like I called her again and again, like this is it. Like if we don't if we, if we don't get the go ahead from you and the money, then we're not going to debut at Gen Con. And I never and I never heard from her again. That was it. I never talked to Lisa again after that. Wow. But she just she just kind of vanished, and Archon just folded its tent and disappeared. Um, so. Uh, the, so the, like the, smoke into the endless sky. <laughs> yes, exactly. But happily, uh, Atlas took pity on us and uh, picked <laughs> us up, and that was fine. John Nephew's home for wayward games. Didn't Atlas originally um, offer, or they were originally interested, but you went with Archon instead and then went back to Atlas? Is that correct? According to Wikipedia, anyway. I don't remember. I probably have the email someplace, but I, I couldn't tell you offhand. It's very likely. I mean, Greg and I were working with with John Nephew and quite a bit on various, you know, over the edge projects and this and that. And of course, that um, prior to that, of course, they picked up Feng Shui when Daedalus went under because um, Robin brought it to them. So we, you know, we we knew John well, um, and that was definitely on the you know on the table. But I I think I was interested in Archon in part because they just they seem to have money to throw around <laughs> to like promote games. Because their 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 big RPG they did was called Noir, which was like a, obviously like a film noir RPG, and when that launched the Gen Con, like they threw like a big party with people in costumes as like noir characters, and like it was kind of a, an impressive situation. And it seemed like yeah. wow, whoever these people are, like they've got their shit together. And it turned out no, they didn't. They just had some money, and I think they ran out of it. Yep. And we tried to get Hogshead Publishing interested, but James said no. Actually, no, James said, uh, can you do another draft with X, Y, and Z? And by that point, we were just, the very idea of redrafting it again was, like, making me break down and weep. Yeah, I mean, at that point, like, the book was fully laid out, illustrated, and ready for print for printing. So the thought of, like, ripping it apart again, reworking more of it, 
Um, and honestly, like what James was looking for, as I recall, was what really was kind of like, you know, who am I and what am I doing? <laughs> Which, you know, is a question obviously we've struggled with ever since to explain well. Um, so I think he was right, but we were not <laughs> at a place where but we were not right like, enough. Yeah, we were not there yet, which is fine. Uh, Atlas did a great job with it, and we've been very happy with them over the years. So, even before like this was a game, all this started as a graphic novel that John was working on, correct? Yeah, it began as just like a thing on my website I was writing, where I was writing up like some little source material about Alex Abel and the New Inquisition and Eponymous and, and the, um, the Naked Goddess tape. And, uh, and Clockworkers, um, and I wrote uh, three short stories, um, kind of in a, more or less in a row. Um, they were about the New Inquisition in particular, um, and, and those characters. Um, and I had the idea of the New Inquisition and the occult underground, um, and kind of like, I don't know, just sort of like the attitude of the thing, like the tone. Um, and then I was, I knew this local artist um, in Seattle, Brian Snowdy, who'd worked on Magic the Gathering and worked on uh, the War Machine miniatures game for many years as well as an artist. Um, and Brian's a terrific guy and really talented. Um, yeah, his work's amazing. Yeah. What's he he's doing great. now? He's, it, he's like made a pile of money off Magic, right? Well, a lot of them did. Um, you know, he was really into, uh, like, Japanese samurai armor and everything mm -hmm. associated with that. That's um, right. So he wound up being a Legend of the Five Rings mainstream. That's right. Yeah. And I think he's done also illustrations for just, like, I don't know if it was, like, for Osprey or one of those kind of publishers, just, like, historical illustrations about documenting, you know, armor and, and masks and regalia and so forth. Um, but, yeah, he's a great guy. I think I recall him making a set of samurai armor to decorate the L5R publisher booth one year. Yeah, I could believe that. Yeah, Sounds was, right, doesn't it? Into it. That's, that would be his bag. He, he owns super Samurai. good at it. So. Yeah, but Brian was interested in doing a comic book to kind of see if he could get into that field. Um, and he and I were talking, and I was like, you know, I got this thing. So I, I wrote a script adapting the first of my stories um, into a comic book issue, and he did a bunch of work on it. He penciled a bunch of pages and inked some as well, but then he got busy with freelance stuff, and it kind of just went on the back burner, and we never got back to it. Um, but then a year or two later, I guess, probably, I was at a point where I felt like I wanted to get something new off the ground and uh, talk to um, talk to Greg and showed him kind of like, here's what I got. And I remember Greg, part of your reaction was like, this is interesting, but it's all like, it makes me feel terrible. It's like really miserable and sad. <laughs> like, how, do we, how do we make this something that people actually want to experience <laughs> instead of like running away from because it's so like full of loathing or whatever? Oh my God. And there's nothing new under the sun because that's exactly what happened with Termination Shock, which was originally going to be this, you know, very edgy, depressing, oh, you start out oppressed by both your ex-human descendants and rioting AIs trying to exterminate you and you know you just barely manage to escape into a larger and more confusing cosmos where you're a refugee surrounded by aliens that are profoundly inscrutable and when I set up like the first game of it the two players are one of them's like so what if we were like the brothers in Frasier I remember this. I listened to that and one. It was perfect. It was such the third heat it needed. So apparently both of us now and again benefit from someone saying, you know, well, 
okay, this is very intense, but what if we took just a little step back from the ledge there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that that sounds about right. (laughs) So, and, you know, clearly we uh, succeeded in making something people want to engage with because we are, you know, on our third edition now and, and, and open license where people can do their own stuff with it. And I think what we've done maybe maybe more in third edition, maybe more deliberately in third edition, is work on the idea that, okay, yes, things are very bad, but you are not helpless before the badness. You are the people who actually give a shit enough to take the big moves and make the big changes. If you're willing to give up enough, you could change everything, but the everything that gets changed is almost certainly going to include you. And, you know, if your character hates themselves enough, that may be like, wow, gift with purchase. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if Cthulhu is about, you know, kind of like sacrificing yourself to save humanity, Unlearned Armies is like sacrificing yourself to like change humanity. And it is, I think, fundamentally an optimistic game because it does, like, it tells you that, like, we, we did it. Like, we're responsible for this world and only we can save ourselves. Only we can make a change in the world. And the problem is, like, change can be positive or negative or relative or whatever, of course. And so you end up in this situation where, like, yeah, I want to make the world better. And that guy also wants to make the world different. And by different, it turns out he means worse. And I think it's worse, but he thinks it's better. And, it, like, it's just politics. Like, it's just like, you know, any any political, any set of political systems, um, you know, striving for dominance globally or something. Like, it's the same kind of thing. It's this clash of ideals um, that are incompatible in some ways. Um, but it does at least hold out the possibility, that, like, maybe you can do it. Like, it does turn the universe into a representative democracy. With all that entails, warts and all, sausage being made just right out there in the open if you know where to look. That's right. Yeah, because then the army is all about stuffing the ballot box. <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded of your metaphor about, well, it's like you it's it's like a piece of pizza that fell on the ground. Might still be good. You gonna eat that pizza? How hungry are you? And I'm like, yeah, that's it. It's it's a street pizza setting. You can always get pizza, but you may not like what comes with it. You may not like your gift with purchase. <clears throat> Is the pizza a representation of, like, the Unknown Army's cosmos itself? A fall of the pizza, pizza is your the soul, man. <laughs> Making one with everything. <laughs> I would like to hear, and we're going to ask this about 3rd um, edition as well, but going back to really early on, with 1st edition even... Um, what were the early playtests and first campaigns, like official campaigns to like hash oh this out? God. Like, oh, you're asking me to remember a long time ago. Did you have an early? You had an early playtest. You must have. You had you had the the whole pagan crew uh, living in your house. Yeah, they were not super into it. Uh, Dennis was huh. Dennis Dutler. Um, was into it and he and I would spend a lot of time talking about unknown armies and he helped me work on the cosmology stuff 
um, which was great. And I think I think I think he contributed the nature of demons, for example. I think that was a Dennis Doubler idea. Wasn't he the one who suggested that the GM tracks your hit points and you never know how many you have? Oh God, I can't remember. Maybe which I I think that I think you said that came from him because I know I didn't come up with that. That was that was outside my conceptual realm at the time. But boy, have I have I become a believer. Um, <laughs> I think that's what Dennis would do in his Call of Cthulhu campaign that he had run in college. I think he kept uh, the, the points a secret, and maybe the sanity points too. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But that that was that was one of his things. You're right. Yeah. That's what I'm doing in my next game. Is that you know? Oh, you have secret stats that only the GM knows. Don't worry. The GM will tell you when something bad happens because you have run out of resources you can't track. Yeah. We're having fun with that. The King and Yellow uh, tarot deck um, that uh, Daniel Harms and I designed years ago and which is going to get published by Arc Dream here in the next year or so. Um, we developed a way of uh, doing tarot readings with the King and Yellow deck um, in which one card is uh, always dealt face down and no one ever gets to know what it was. Nice. So you never know what's missing. That that shows up in Everway too. Um, I do remember an early Unknown Armies camp. I can't remember anything about what we did, except that it was all street level and people just running around being dirtbags. And uh, yeah, I'd drive out to Cicero every <laughs> Sunday and uh, play Unknown Armies with uh, Thomas Manning. And I think... I'm trying to remember who was in it that early, if Tim Toner was in at that time. But yeah, and it was, you know, like, okay, you guys know nothing. Well, I'm not going to tell you. You could figure the setting out, uh, which I didn't do out of my, you know, current evolved GM position of, oh, this is going to mess with them so bad, but rather more of a, oh, well, this is just how people will play the game. This will be a, a setting you discover through play. Which, again, I think makes it real fun, but hard to sell. Yeah, I only ever played UA really as, as one-offs. Um, I didn't get to do like a big grand campaign, unfortunately, and the players for it. So I, I kind of counted on, because Greg was, uh, among many other things, was the um, core like rules designer and system designer of Runland Armies. Um, so he was doing a lot of the lion's share of that kind of work. Um, and the stuff I got to do was just like I would do one-off games here and there and have a good time with it. But I didn't, have the, I didn't get the experience of stitching together an entire campaign. You should do it, man. You should get third edition and play it like a, you know, not like a co-designer, but like a GM and get together. You could, you could probably find some people out in Seattle who would be willing to meet you once a week or every other week to play it in person. I don't doubt it. It's really a function of time. Yeah. I run a D&D campaign for my wife and kid uh, about, and we play like once a month probably. Um, wow. For like five years, um, which has been phenomenal. So you're probably, they're probably up to like fifth level now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a good time. My daughter just got her first cloud kill and she's really digging into the ethical conflicts. Of... <laughs> nice. <laughs> So speaking of the rules, the rules. Uh, Unknown Armies had, like, the early editions had so many sort of creative, at the time, very groundbreaking rules in a lot of ways. Uh, that game prefigures uh, a lot of the stuff that would come out, like The Forge, and the story game movement in the early 2000s. Stuff, like, where did stuff like 
the uh, madness meters and the custom skills and all that come from? Why did you choose those particular five things for the madness meters? Um, okay, so where custom custom skills is the easy answer. I stole it from Jonathan Tweet. Uh, we were playing over the edge, and I'm like, man, this is a lot more interesting than having a laundry list of skills and and you know checking off the ones I want. And you know, with Rain I went back to laundry list of skills, but more and more now I'm like how can I do this to get the players involved cuz players clearly love that. They come running for the great chance for the the great taste of, "Oh, I'm I'm an alligator wrestler." No one would put alligator wrestler on a, list, a big laundry list of skills, but it's clearly such a perfect Unknown Armies concept. Thank you, Gareth Hanrahan, who, fun trivia fact, was the first fatality of the third edition rules, his his alligator wrestler character. so Was it through alligator wrestling? He got in a fight with his stepdad. <laughs> and and hit the stepdad roll after he hit his stepdad with a, a shovel in a parking lot, I think the stepdad rolled a uh, a natural one and just accidentally stabbed him in the neck. And we're like, Oh I'll do it. Oh goodbye, Reese. We're sorry, Reese. You were a good guy, Reese, but it's time to let the darkness take you. Um, as for where the, the madness meters came from, that was, I mean, a reaction to Call of Cthulhu, but also seemed like a natural outgrowth of Call of Cthulhu. Before Call of Cthulhu, it would not have occurred to me that to gamify the psyche, right? To have the struggle to keep your mind right be the subject of a role-playing game because before that I've been playing like Dungeons and Dragons and Car Wars. But at the time I was writing this, my my part-time job was uh, working as a secretary for a group of social workers uh, specializing in children who had just undergone the worst experiences that Iowa in the 90s had to offer. And so just a lot of really dark stuff that I could not, you know, I could not stick with that job because I could not compartmentalize it away comfortably. But it did give me a sense of how this is a complicated process. It's not just, you know, oh, you, you roll on a, a D100 chart and whatever happens, oh, you, well, you know, you're, you're scared of spiders now. And I'm like, no, that's not how, that's not how people get sick. And the real way that people form these adaptations to trauma is much more interesting and says a lot more about their character than randomness could. And so I, I tried to, you know, think about, okay, what are the things that set people off? Because in Call of Cthulhu at the time, it was mostly, you know, oh, you, you see a monster uh, or you confront a reality for which you are unprepared, to phrase it less flippantly. And I wanted that to be in Unknown Armies, but I'm also like, but there's a, a lot of other stuff that messes people up. And so it's like, you know, being a victim of violence, but also inflicting violence, just doing the, the, the whole of society 
arguably exists to make violence a really inconvenient way to solve your problems. And when you take those acts or when they are taken on you, you have to confront the idea that, okay, I have stepped out of the norms and people would disapprove of me. Or alternately, you have to confront the idea of society said it would protect me from this and it failed. Uh, which, you know, leads into helplessness and isolation and self was the you know self was probably you know a natural one it may it may look like a, a brilliant inclusion from the outside but you know as a writer i'm well acquainted with how much damage we do to our own personalities it's like you know oh yeah self-hatred that's that's my mailing address uh you know and you work on it and you try to not be, not spend your life wallowing in rancid self-loathing. Uh, and so I'm like, yeah, that that needs to be in there. And it seemed to also dovetail nicely with these are prices people will confront as they make their decisions about how they're going to navigate their experiences. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do something really rotten. I'm going to sell out Betty and frame her to the cops and, you know, and that'll get rid of my Betty problem, even though she thinks we're friends. And I'm like, there should be some kind of measurable price for that. And it's and self is where I found that. It's like, you know, if you don't think of yourself as a treacherous, backstabbing son of a bitch, being confronted with evidence that you are, it it stresses you. In the same way, as, you know, if you think of yourself as, oh, I could never strike a woman in anger, and then the situation arises where that's your least bad option, and you're like, oh, I guess I miscalculated my moral threshold. Um, so it's it, it was one of the prices you paid, but at the same time, through developing hardened notches, it's also like, but it also protects you. You know, you don't want to be a dewy, trembling fawn who clutches their pearls the first time they see, the first time someone takes a swing at them. You know, it's to your advantage to be tough, but there's a price for that advantage. And this is has worked in even more thoroughly in third edition because I'm like, oh, we can tie this to a series of basic activities. You know, everyone's going to want to know how how good they are at fighting, even if they don't have any skill or identity that that gives them that. So it's now it's like, oh, if you have lived a violent life, you are better equipped to deal with violence, but you are less well equipped to deal with people. And if you have, uh, you know, lived a life full of lying to yourself, well, that will protect you from some things, but it will insulate you it will also insulate you from some positive experiences so yeah it just it seemed to it seemed to write itself really it does make a lot of sense what i wanted to ask about is there was a few rumors related to anonami's projects or books that um didn't end up seeing the light of day there's rumors of a sect of the naked goddess source book 
there's rumors of like a particular city it was like indianapolis or something probably not that's what i always think it is campaign setting book um there's the history of the albuquerque albuquerque that's oh it. <laughs> oh that's a good one yeah i i have that tim toner wrote it it was pretty good but it just never made it out and i don't i'm not sure why it was probably an archon thing and atlas was just like um yeah i don't remember either i I remember that existing i think it was still like a first draft or an early draft but um i don't know why we never acted on that i can't honestly remember anymore what the deal was the main project that comes to mind that uh, i tried to kick off and we could just couldn't get it done um was uh actually with um i think it was with gareth hanrahan as i recall um which I, i met with him and um I think maybe Ty Kelly too, I forget, at um, a convention in the UK. I can't recall which one. Maybe it was in Ireland, actually. actually. Of course it was in Ireland. Um, Galecon, maybe. And um, I wanted them to work on a Unknown Army's LARP. Oh, I remember this. Yeah, because like the the whole, you know, um, the Masquerade stuff from White Wolf had, had, you know, been very popular and was a key part of, I think, their success over time. Um, and the Irish gaming scene had a lot of LARPing going on, so those guys knew about it. Um, and so I talked to them about, you know, what, if, what can we do in Unknown Army's LARP? What would that look like? And the, um, the challenge I asked them to try to figure out was, uh, how do we make a LARP that results in, uh, in people deciding to uh, have sex? I remember this, and I remember you <laughs> phrasing it less tastefully. <laughs> I think I said, like, how do we make a LARP that gets people laid? Yes, My understanding is the there was already a lot of that happening at the Vampire LARPs. Yeah, we 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 didn't know that, you know, people were tight-lipped. It wasn't, it wasn't internet well, it's, times. it's a Ren sort of deal, right? It, it was definitely inspired by, by the whole Camarilla stuff. Because, yeah, that absolutely was a LARP that got people laid one way or another. Um, and it seemed like that was a pretty popular experience um, that people recommended and wanted to do again. Um, so I was just curious, like, how do we create, how do we structure a LARP in such a way that that can be fostered in some way, like some kind of, you know, interpersonal connections and, you know, overcoming difficulties together or whatever, like, how do we do that? And I think that, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I can't speak for Gare and Ty, but um, that, I think it didn't really go anywhere. It was... It was a bridge too far. <laughs> it, it really was. Like, how do you do that deliberately? It it may be one of those things that's better left to just the mysteries of interpersonal chemistry and and chance. You know, it, it feels like doing it by design. In retrospect, I'm like, doing it by design feels like pickup artist stuff, even if it is... Even if it is, uh, you know, equal opportunity for different genders, pickup artist stuff, it's still, there's a little bit of, mm, mm. Yeah, no, and I agree with you. I just, at the time, I, I just thought, like, there's got to be a way we can, you know, like, build a milieu where people connect in, in like, kind of intense and exciting ways. And that would lead to, you know, them forming, you know, kind of bonds with each other and so on. Like, that's, that's how yes. I think about it. Okay, uh, uh, let me throw this out there. Because this is a thing that's always bothered me about a lot of pop culture is that, you know, the people go through this exhilarating, dangerous thing and then they immediately they're all over each other. And I'm like, 
And my experience with, you know, car crashes and pain and unexpected hassles, it's the last thing that makes me horny. You know, at the end of that, I'm not like, oh, I just want someone to hold me. I'm just, I'm more like, I just want to go to bed and wake up and be farther in time from that shit show. <laughs> That's yeah. something that you and J.G. Bell would disagree on. Ah, uh, well, I guess so. I mean, I mean, if you're Holly Hunter and James Spader, it works out great. <laughs> otherwise, yeah. Fine, fine. Yeah, that's the that's the main one I can think of that was like the one that got away. Um, there was a there was some work on a, uh, a like a mini source book about um, the Order of Saint Cecil um, that we were working on, and uh, it just needed more time and attention than I had available to give at that point, because that was kind of after I had, had left tabletop gaming. Um, so we kind of, we ended up scotching that one because I didn't just have the, the fortitude anymore to deal with it. But that's, that's the main ones I can think of offhand. I mean, certainly we got pitched various things, but we were, especially in the first edition when we, it felt like we were just like cranking out book after book after book. Um, we were kind of just trying to cover all the sort of high value targets like the splat books for the different cabals and things and the um getting into you know more options for um adepts and avatars just like really core stuff kind of like they were doing in second edition D&D with all the crazy like complete rogues books and stuff um we were just sort of looking to have like a good baseline of coverage across the pro- across the project um before we got into things like um like a city book or whatever what about the History of the Occult Underground source book? Uh, we've actually spent an episode covering the draft of that thing a while back. Boy, you would have to ask about things that I have barely any memory of whatsoever. <laughs> um, let me see. Uh, like, that rings a very faint bell, but I gotta tell you, I'm just like, I don't know what that is. Um, oh yeah, there it is. The Occult Underground Rough Guide. That's kind of what we were. Who's the one that did that, Thompson? Uh, he he's moved on to some very big things, if I remember correctly. James James something I forgot. James Palmer, James Palmer. Oh, that's, James that's Palmer. it. Oh, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah. James was great. Um, yeah, I. That's a great question because like because I mean you mentioned this and now I'm looking at it like I have I have the the documents still in my in my uh, you know cloud storage thing and like yeah here it is it's the under it's the under, the occult underground guide and we like looking through it um, you know we'd made a ton of like comments and notes and stuff in there I think it probably just ran into the phase of um, the second getting the second edition of the game done and the initial two books for that. And then that's the point at which I burned out on tabletop games entirely and just left. Um, so I think it was one that got stranded when I left uh, tabletop games because for Unlearned Armies, I was doing, um, like I was running the whole line. So I was commissioning all the writing, I was art directing all the artists, I was doing all the layout, all the pre-press. Like I would just produce entire books with freelancers and then hand them off to Atlas to publish. And, uh, and I did a ton of that with first edition of Unknown Armies. And then I got through the, the rule book and the first two books um, to go and uh, break today. Um, and it wasn't just Unknown Armies. It was all the pagan stuff and so forth I was doing as well. I just I just hit a wall. I couldn't do it anymore. So I, I think that's what happened to the to James's Occult Underground book. So kind of speaking of that, actually. Um, so those like early, 
though that whole line is interesting because you very prominently specify who wrote what in the book and i'm curious about what the creative environment surrounding developing that game line was like I mean, you got, got like, I think Mike Merle's first, his first RPG credits are in yeah. an Arby's book. Yeah, totally. No, a whole bunch of folks oh. um, had Was it Yue or was there. it Feng Shui? Merle's, I think Merle's, well, he says that I was the first one to publish him. I thought it was Unknown Armies. I forgot he did Feng Shui stuff, actually. Oh, well, it, it, okay, well. But yeah. Yeah, no, we, so that Unknown Armies attracted a bunch of people who were interested in playing it and then and writing for it because they were fans of the game. Um, and that was, you know, James and Mike Merles and other folks, Chad Underkoffler and other folks. Um, you know, like, as I recall, you know, we for any given book, um, we would, you know, I think Greg and I would sort of agree on like, yeah, let's do a sleepers book or let's do a, you know, whatever book. Um, and we'd kind of write up a, like a pitch for it, like a back of the back of the book cover, you know, kind of write up. Um, and then sort of just solicit, um, pitches from the, um, the freelancing community that we had built up. And so we just had a whole stable of writers. And then in some cases we would even go to just like a general call for entries on the, on the, on the armies, like discussion areas on the a mailing list. Yeah. A mailing list. And just say, really like, hey, we there were, yeah. And we would ask for like, we're looking for new magic schools, for example, new ad schools. And we'd. You know, get pitches for those, and then pick a bunch of winners, and then go into full write-ups with the with the with the writing team. Do you remember uh, Welter and Waste? Yeah, some of that name I can't recall what that referred to. It was uh, James Palmer's extremely lengthy fanfic that he posted on the mailing list that was about unknown armies in World War II, and I remember reading that and going, oh shit, this guy's a better writer than me. I gotta step my game up. Fuck. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, right. James was phenomenal, uh, and he's he's since had a long career as a uh, uh, like a national sort of international sort of like politics and culture correspondent um, as a journalist, um, mostly covering China for various prestigious publications. Um, but he was super talented, and actually he ran a game of Unknown Armies that I played in when I visited, because he was still a student at uh, Cambridge, and I, I stayed there, um, spent a night there on a, on a tour, I was, a trip I was doing, and he I joined his UA game for one night, um, which was great fun. But yeah, he did that, he, he, that was him that worked in that book. But those like those projects, we would just take in pitches from people for elements of the book or we'd assign stuff in some cases. Um, and then I just get, I'd get the drafts and review them and edit them and clean them up and send them to Greg to look at and then get the art commission, lay it all out. And I remember, um, I can't recall which book it was. It might've been postmodern magic. Uh, when John nephew was like, there are too goddamn many authors on these books <laughs> because he was having to pack up contributor copies and like everyone got like <laughs> six copies. And he's like, I just shipped out like 300 books because that you had so many people contributing these books. You've got to like shorten the list. Like this is ridiculous. We, we narrowed it down a bit. As for why things were, you know, why why we said this person wrote that, I, mean, I don't think it ever occurred to us not to. You were doing that. You always did that with Delta Green. And there was, I mean, I think the part of the feeling was, oh, 
we want people to get the credit for what they do. And if I write something really cool, I want my byline on it. So that a part of it was trying to counter the Tynes effect, which at the time was if someone read something they really liked in Delta Green or Unknown Armies, they assumed John wrote it. Right. It's now the Gareth Hanrahan effect, by the way. <laughs> he, is, he has inherited your power somehow. Um and it was at the same time i mean that was how that was how the books were how book, gaming books were put together you couldn't have just one person write a sense of the sleight of hand man uh and and keep up any kind of schedule of putting out supplements you had to have a supplement mill that was the model that uh, white wolf had demonstrated but uh as i i you know did more work for white wolf I remember very clearly someone explaining to me that, like, yeah, no, your name, the names of the writers are not going to be on the cover, and we're not going to uh, give attribution for piecework, you know, for the pieces of it that you wrote, because we don't see a percentage in and having people develop fandoms for particular writers. We want them to be fans of the line. And... I'm like that's that's kind of you know, and now and you know, and I've got books on my uh, shelf from various White Wolf iterations that do say, "Oh no, this part was by so and so, and this part was by thus and such," and I just feel that's better. I mean, when I'm looking for freelance writers now, I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, I know this, I know I like parts of this book. And I wish I knew who of the dozen writers listed here wrote those parts so that I could contact them instead of having to, like, tiptoe up to the publisher and say, so, who wrote X? Because that was really good, and I'd like to hire them, but not all the other dead weight you've got in here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because especially, like, I, I had come from a place of really wanting to respect um, the creators of the work that we published. And that was at Pagan, you know, from with the magazine, we did The Unspeakable Oath, um, you know, for, for, for good or for ill, in some cases, long term, um, we didn't buy the copyrights to the work we did. We just did like a one-time usage kind of thing um, because I wanted people to just kind of have like an ownership of the work they made. Um, and we, with Unknown Armies, I just want to make sure that everyone got their name on the cover and that there was clear credit inside for who wrote what. Because it was like lots of pieces, like a character here, a cabal there, a, you know, add up school here, an avatar there. Um, and I thought it was important. Like it's like, I know what, I know how good it feels to see your name on the cover of a book. And I want to make sure mm -hmm. everyone got to have that experience and that you could look at a book and see like, oh, this guy wrote that stuff. Oh, that was my favorite part of the book. Like, I think it's important to be able to, to see that and to celebrate them, especially because we couldn't pay very well. I mean, like, you know, this was kind no. of low end publishing and we were paying, I don't even know, like two or three cents a word, probably maybe four uh, cents a word at best. Uh, like yeah. it was, it was not, it, it was not a lot of money. So if you can't pay oh, people. Oh, no, this that, was back in the 20th century, mind you, when you, what a silver dollar would buy you a steak dinner. Yeah. I mean, the thing is no, like, we were paying exactly. in, in like low end RPG circles, like as opposed to like TSR or somebody. Um, was actually equivalent to uh, the same number of pennies per word that H.P. Lovecraft was getting paid for stories and weird tales of, like, 19... Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, no, 70 years later, it was still, like, two or three cents a word. Like, that's what it was. So, 
It's, now, that, uh, your tales is like a big magazine. Like they sold a lot of copies, so they were a, they were a much bigger publisher than Atlas or Pagan Publishing or whatever. But still, it was ghastly, and that's that's what we could do because we would like these these books. I couldn't tell you exactly what Atlas was printing, but at Pagan, most of our books we would print three thousand copies. Like that was the print one we would do. And the only thing we ever did multiple printings of was Delta Green. Um, so I think on the armies is probably on a similar scale, you know, like you know, two thousand copies, three thousand, four thousand, somewhere in there. So there weren't enough copies even being produced to sell enough to pay people, you know, a good wage, a good amount. So recognition was the best we was was what we could offer in addition to the you know paltry money involved. I, I found out sometime in the last several years about the concept of prestige industries, and I hate it. And a prestige industry is one like comic book writing where there are non-financial rewards to doing it that people find very, very powerful. And, you know, all, form of write, all forms of writing above, like instruction manuals for technological devices have some aspect of prestige industry. And, you know, poetry is a fine example because, you know, people will be like, yeah, you don't have to pay me anything. Just give me a couple copies and you can have my poem. And so you can get away with paying people very, very little if there is this powerful psychological reward of, wow, I was a part of this IP that I love so much. And it's kind of, I mean, it can be kind of abusive and exploitative. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be abusive and exploitative. So it's it's tough. Um, and, you know, people who do want to be abusive and exploitative, you can see the things with, well, you know, seven cents a word is what we pay. And if you don't want seven cents a word, I got a recent college graduate who's all fired up and young and has new ideas and he'll do it for five. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and actually for foreign armies, um, I can't recall what, what you negotiated, Greg, but I like, I did most of my work for royalties and not for, um, not for flat payments. Um, and like as a line editor, as like the person who's doing all the layout and the, and the editorial work and so forth. Um, and uh, and bizarrely, like I still get a check from Atlas Games like every quarter, like 20 yeah. years later, I st we still get payments from those guys for ongoing sales of print copies and PDFs and so forth. And like, you know, like it's not a whole lot, but over the years it's added up to quite a bit and it's been It's, it's the been long great. tail, baby. Everybody yeah. loves the long tail. <laughs> So yeah, I I've I get the residuals too. It's it's nice. Um so but yeah, you it takes a while to build this up. This is a conversation I've had with uh you know other freelancers where if you work on someone else's IP, generally the way it works is you get paid a per word rate and there are a lot of advantages to doing this. I know that some of the pagan guys would, you know, make fun of me for working for the World of Darkness, but I'm like, man, the rate is better than any other rate I'm getting, and I don't have to do anything but the writing. I don't have to edit. I don't have to lay out. I don't have to find writers. I don't have to assemble anything. I just, you know, I go there, do what I'm told, cash my check, and never think about it again until I get my nicely illustrated uh, copy for my shelf. And doing that's great, except that if that's all you do, 
after 10 years, you have nothing built up. And, you know, the, the opposite uh, the opposite end of the spectrum is like a Tim Hutchins who's like, I'm going to make my game that I want to exist and I'm going to do all the writing and all the layout and all the development and all the PR and all of everything myself and then every cent and, and be a, a an abject control freak about it. And, you know, and he wrote Thousand Year Old Vampire, which is amazing. And, you know, all the profit from Thousand-Year-Old Vampire goes to him, and, you know, he deserves that. And ten years from now, he'll probably still be getting Thousand-Year-Old Vampire checks. But that is a lot of work up front to build that long tail. And so I'm like, I, I like being able to do a little from column A and a little from column B and be a control freak uh, one week and be someone else's good soldier the next week. It's... I find that's a healthy balance. Well, guys, I do need to wrap up and get going. Uh, if there is any one last thing I can address out on my way out the door, I'll be happy to. What is your fursona? <laughs> <laughs> that's a rather personal question, don't you think? <laughs> what is my fursona? Uh, yeah, boy, that's that's a... That's one of those like James Lipton inside the actor studio questions. Uh, <laughs> you know, honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is Trash Panda. So I guess I'll go with that. All right. All right. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, is there anything you want to, you know, chill, push like that is either out or will be out soon? Um, the stuff that like I, I did some Delta Green work uh, for the... A couple of years ago, which is sort of like slowly finishing up. Um, so I think next year you'll see. Um, this isn't strictly Delta Green, but my uh, Arc Dream is reprinting uh, my three King and Yellow stories from the '90s: um, Broad Alban, Ambrose, and Sesostris, which have not been available except in really small print runs here and there. And that's those are going to be together next year uh, in a book called Whisper Labyrinth. Um, and also next year will be the uh, King and Yellow Tarot deck that was first described in Delta Green Countdown, um, which, which now is fully illustrated by some by an amazing artist that's some gorgeous work. So that'll be an actual tarot deck next year sometime, uh, which I'm really excited about. So, and then I've got a Delta Green adventure uh, called The Good Life that is um, for an anthology we're doing that's uh, related to my source book, The Labyrinth, I did for Delta Green a couple years ago. And so that anthology is still in the works, and my scenario for that, um, I recently turned in a complete version of. So that's that's in, on the way. Um, so basically just look at Arc Dream, and sooner or later you'll see some stuff from me coming out. All right, nice. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, John. It's been great having a chance to pick your brain for a little bit and hear about the good old days. Absolutely. Yeah, I haven't heard your voice in ages. <laughs> it's true. Well, and now that I'm leaving, uh, Greg, you can tell them all the all the dirt that you didn't want to say in front of me. <laughs> yeah, I was when I ducked out for my little break. I'm like, yeah, right about now. He's like, okay. Well, he's outside the room. He's just a glory hogging piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Such a prima donna. Oh my god, thinks the sun rises and sets out his ass. Oh my god, no. No, honestly, like, <laughs> in all the time I spent in tabletop games, and it's remained true in, in video games and stuff too, I've worked on, um, all the best work I ever did was collaborative. Like, working with Greg on London Armies, with Dennis and Scott on Delta Green, with many other people over the years. 
um, getting to collaborate with people was the best part of all that stuff. And that's where the best work came from. So I'm actually remain. I still feel like Greg did the heavy lifting and I was just like, <laughs> the time, he was like, here's some ideas I had, Mr. Stolze. What do you think? <laughs> they were lovely ideas, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> but they're so depressing. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. Right. And, uh, yeah, keep up the good work. Thanks so All much right. for coming and on. Talk to you later. And then there were three. That's fun, man. I miss, I miss conventions mostly for that, for talking to people that I don't get to talk to. Mm. <sighs> All right. But, yeah, on a more positive note, so you had questions about third edition. <clears throat> Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Uh, I guess the my persona, by the <laughs> way. There was yes. a photograph I saw of a bat, and it was like a, a juvenile bat in a zoo. And its comfort, you know, it, it for comfort, it would clutch this pink, cuddly teddy bear. And so I'm like, yes, I've never identified with any animal quite so strongly. That's me. That's the 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 clingy darkness. So there you go. That's a good duality there as well. I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, uh, I guess the thing to start with on this was what made you want to do a new edition of Unknown Armies with all this uh, kind of story game influenced uh, aspects People to it? People kept asking. People kept saying, you know, when are you going to do something new for Unknown Armies? When are you going to do something new for Unknown Armies? When are you going to do something new? When are, when's more Unknown Armies? What, what are you working on for Unknown Armies? And I'm like, man, it's... The thing was that I felt Unknown Armies was really good and was, uh, you know, among the strongest work I'd done, among the, the best stuff that I'd worked on, and I did not want to put out anything mediocre and this is this is the problem of starting strong is that everyone expects you to continue to st continue strong right and no one more than myself i'm like i don't want to just churn something out that's a placeholder that that you know props up attention until i get a compelling real idea like that's that's unfair to the fans. That's unfair to me. Uh, I'm like, I'm not going to do it until I have a really, really good idea on what to do. And at some point, it would be interesting to, you know, wade through all the emails and posts or whatever prompted it. But uh, I, think it, I think what may have been the initial spark into the powder keg may have been just Nephew saying, yeah, we're running out of print volumes for second edition, and I don't want to do a reprint. Uh, third edition would sell better. We could kickstart it. And so I'm like, well, what would a third edition look like? And, uh, you know, and because I didn't have enough good ideas of my own... This this was my big insight before third edition was I need help. I should bring more people in because, you know, Tynes was involved, but he couldn't be central the way he'd been previously. He had, you know, he had all these other uh, responsibilities and I think maybe a non-compete clause was in play somewhat. So, you know, he just, you know, he was not going to take on a giant chunk of it. And so I'm like, all right, well, if I feel like 
I have said most of what I want to say. What if I get some other people in and see what they want to say? And as soon as I had other voices in dialogue, my own ideas started flowing more freely. And so that that was, uh, you know, that was the creative, that there was both a financial and a creative impetus. And I also, you know, I'd learned stuff about game design, and I looked at second edition, and I'm like, this is okay, but what, what are the parts no one's stoked about? Is there any way I can take those out? And that was, uh, you know, the stats. I'm like, nobody cares that your body stat is real high because you almost never use the stat itself. I'm like, so what if, well, what if instead of stats, we just used the stress meters? And that opened up a way to do some really interesting things with the mechanics. And once I was, you know, doing interesting things with the mechanics also, I'm like, well, now I'm in the headspace and... So yeah, that that is that is the story of that, and I have nothing but good things to say about the people who actually turned their work in for third edition. <laughs> there were some, there were some people who agreed to write, and when the time came, said, "Oh, I didn't write anything," and I'm like, "Oh, well, I can give you more time." And they're like, "You probably want to fire me from the project, don't you?" I'm like, "No, what I want." is to fill this 40,000-word hole in my outline. Uh, and I, what I want is for you to do the work you say you do. It sounds like you want me to fire you, which they kind of did. Oof. And it's yeah, it's rough. I mean, Well, you know, this is... If you want to be a role-playing game writer, the best advice I can give you is write to the brief and hit deadlines. And if you do that enough... You do not have to be brilliant, actually, because from the developer side of things, if you give me the choice between a writer who I'm like, oh, yeah, John Schmuck's a good writer, you know, he'll hit the brief, he'll, you know, it'll be in on time, it won't be that hard to edit. That's like a gem. It doesn't have to be brilliant. It'll be good enough. And, you know, and it might be brilliant, or we might be able to elevate it to brilliance. But if you have another writer who there's a 50% chance that they are going to hand in something absolutely brilliant, and there's a 50% chance that they are going to do nothing at all, you can't base a plan on that. You can't base your schedule on a coin toss. So, yeah, those are people who are probably happier and better off working as indie game designers because when they do have their fire of inspiration they can make their stuff and then it's done and they can get it out and that'll work in a way that maybe i'll write this and maybe i won't write this doesn't work for other people's uh ideas but tangible yeah. mediocrity being better than hypothetical brilliance well you know it's like schrodinger's brilliance right it's like i'm gonna open this box and either the cat's alive or dead but I don't know until I open the box, the box in this case being a deadline, after which the publisher starts saying, so which of your writers flaked on you, man? <laughs> Are there 40,000 words in this box or not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, wow, I'm still a little salty about that. Who knew? <laughs> How common is this like a problem with sort of 
putting a big RPG project like this together. It's... I've always found it to be a problem, and part of that may be that I am too... Maybe I'm just too much of a sweetheart, and I, I, I want my writers to like me, and I want to encourage people to get better at their craft and more professional, blah, 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 blah. And compare and contrast with, you know, editors who scare you. And I've had editors who were like, you know, don't fuck with me, Stoles. You get it in on time. Just write this. Don't go off on some huge flight of fancy. And I'm just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, I get it. Sure, sure, boss. You're the boss. And, you know, those people seem to get better results out of a certain class of writer. Because, uh, you know, it's like, okay, you scare me, but also I want your approval. And, you know, and they, they, they make the trains run on time? Wow, that went dark. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... RPG you... writing is, a, is about force of will. <laughs> so, I do not know. I'm putting the, the photo in the chat oh, of the beautiful. bat hugging the, the bunny. And I do not know who took that picture. But that's, yeah, I'm like, that's me. It's me. <laughs> I'm that sad little bat. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, um, getting creatives to work together is in some ways like herding cats. Uh, you know, you, you if they if they wanted to follow rules and be predictable, they would not be writing creative stuff or you know doing illustrations for weird occult games. So, I mean, you know, you, you take what you get, and a lot of times what you get is surprisingly great. Uh, but there's always that that little element of, okay, are they going to do it on time? Are they going to do the right amount? Is it going to fly off in some weird direction? I mean, this is, this is a... Pro I've also had the opposite problem where it's like, okay, you know... Write me 40,000 words on X, and the deadline rolls around, and they hand in 80,000 words. And I'm like, can I get, can I get paid for the, the rest of this? And I'm like, uh, we did not budget for the page count to have something to have this be that big. Make it small. Make it small. So it's, but, you know, that's... This is why I try to avoid being a publisher and developer. I've, uh, you know, I've been a publisher and developer and realized that that is not where my skills lie, that I am a much better writer and creator. So I mm. try to put myself in situations where I can emphasize doing what I like and am good at rather than having to do what I dislike and am adequate at. I mean, the example, are you familiar with Spike Trotman? No, I'm not. No. So Spike Trotman was a webcomic artist who, um, you know, had this, this webcomic called Templar Arizona and was, you know, selling her own uh, self-published comic books at, um, at conventions. And I was a fan of Templar, and so, you know, she and I became Twitter mutuals and whatnot. And she started this 
comic publishing company called Iron Circus Comics. And she's like, I'm, I don't know if I can take credit for her taking to Kickstarter and doing crowdfunding. I think at, at least I contributed to her thinking, no, this works. People will back will back things they want. This is a viable this is a viable way to do it. And she has been so much more successful at it than I ever had. And it turns out that what she really loves, you know, she likes drawing comics and she still draws some comics, but what she loves is business. And that seems to be a very, very rare combination of someone who has actual artistic talent, but also actual business acumen. I mean, obviously, I can think of the one. Yeah, and it wasn't even within the RPG industry. It, and it wasn't even in the RPG industry. I mean, people... I, I, it would not surprise me if the RPG industry actively repelled people with business acumen. <laughs> they just look at it and they're like... Yeah. Really? They're like, um, <laughs> clearly, you know... Okay, so I can work for D&D or I can make chicken feed. Wow, what a great set of choices, uh, you know. And I'm sure there's some ambitious gamer who is, you know, with a Wharton business degree, who's like, I want to work in gaming, and he is now, and he's going to find a wonderful job at Wizards of the Coast. Because, you know, if you're a Wharton business graduate, that's where you're going to go. You're not going to start your own wee little bespoke, we-can-use-the-barn company to publish your vision. That's a move that visionaries make. So, I mean, a, a lot of stuff that I make, and I am very, very fortunate to be in a position where I don't have to do work I don't want to do. And that may be, I, I've been in something of a creative slump lately, but I mean, part of that may be that I'm answering to nobody but myself. And without that pressure and desperation, I don't work as hard. Uh, I'm doing stuff I like and I'm interested in, but I'm not doing, I, I'm not as productive as I want to be. Based on what you were saying before about third edition coming out because people kept annoying you about it, and what you've just said now, it suggests that we should annoy you and say, <laughs> when are you going to make something? Uh, well, I mean, did you listen to Thunderhead Mesa? Not yet. I will. Thunderhead Mesa was extremely fun. Uh, and, you know, I suppose uh, I suppose I could put that together uh, and, and put it up through Statosphere. Uh, the ideal, as I think about it, would be to get Thomas Deeney to work on it. I bet that he'd, he could make it look real cool. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, it's about interaction. Uh, if, if people were constantly talking with me about Unknown Armies, I would probably get more cool ideas about Unknown Armies. But having just moved to a new town, I'm a little bit in hermit mode, right? So I have not found a good gaming group in Beloit, Wisconsin yet. Uh, you know, Matt Forbeck's always traveling. So what you're saying is I should annoy you about the Mac Attacks, like project I'm working on for Statosphere. I there see. You go. <laughs> um, that who is working on? Me and a group of others. We put out one book on the Statosphere. Um, basically, I'm taking your descript, like the Mac Attacks from third edition, and making it way too complicated, and sure. doing separate splat books for each of the. That's well, how the you four, do. the four groups. So the the. 
I, and I've given them new names and I've changed details based on like, I'm like, this is what Greg wrote, but I can interpret this in a completely different way. Classic. Yeah, well, you know, if you you know me and if you know me and you want me to look something over, ask me to look it over and I'll probably do it because I'm such a horrible softy. So this is this is the other side of not being, the, this is the upside of not being the fierce demanding developer who makes the trains run on time. I'm the... I'm the chilled out hippie developer. I was like, there'll be another train along. It'll time is time is just a construct, man. Yeah, that's something I've kind of noticed. That like, I'll like talk to friends and we'll be doing our RPG shit, and occasionally I'm just like, hey, talk to the guy on Twitter. Like, if you really want to know about this, they probably have an answer, and then they get all intimidated. And I, all oh, you guys God. are guys. Like, you're yeah. just dudes. And the gaming field is small enough that it's not like you're rolling up to J.K. Rowling and asking her about Harry Potter when she really wants to talk about transphobia. Uh, it's, It's not like you are going up to a rock star and asking them, so... How did you, how do you shred? I mean, these these are, you know, people get into writing games because they love the games. And it's enough of a niche thing that it's kind of a nice surprise when someone comes at you with an intelligent question and insight about your work and it's it's fun when someone's paying attention. And I've found this with even, you know, it's not it doesn't even have to be a small a small field. If you talk to a fine artist and say, "I this is what I really liked about your work. I saw this and this and this and it really spoke to me and it made me glad I was alive." They're not going to be like, "Uh-huh, yes, go away. We're done with you now." No, they're going to be like, "Well, thank you. Wow, that's really good to hear." Um, I, I think that, you know, probably pop stars get tired of adulation and people being interested in their work, but most writers are not at pop star level. Okay, so a few years ago, right, I found the website of a woman who had written some books I really loved as a kid. She wrote The Egypt Game and The Headless Cupid, if I'm uh, Oh, I remember right. those. Fuck. She's still around? Shit. I think she might have since passed on. But at the time, there was an email link. And so I emailed her and I'm like, hi, I really loved your books. And, you know, when I was a kid, I made my mom go to the library and get the Headless Cupid on record and play it over and over and over again. And I wanted you to know how much I enjoyed it and that I'm now a writer myself. And she wrote back this chatty email about how nice it was to hear that she'd had an effect so yeah if you are wondering whether you should contact a creator and talk to them about their creation absolutely do it the internet has taken so much from us this is the one one of the few wonderful things it gives i mean if it's guillermo del toro he might be too busy to get back to you if it's someone who wrote a romance novel you liked, they may well respond and say, "Oh gosh, thanks." So, that makes sense. Is anyone even the least bit surprised that one of my seminal influences was a book entitled The Headless Cupid 
or the headless anything. Not in the slightest. That's on brand. The headless kid. Zilpha Keatley Snyder. Fuck yeah. God, I remember again those. It's <sighs> Scholastic Book Fairs. Oh yeah, I did some damage. I don't even know they do those anymore. Uh, obituary. Died in 2014. Oh, yeah, there you go. <sighs> but yeah, before that, she sent me an email. So, third edition has pulled back a bit from sort of the organized crime and to a lesser extent, the horror elements that really characterize the earlier editions. Why did you decide to go in that direction? Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe I was at a good place in my life. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe what? like I. Maybe I was like, I've got Tynes doing that. Um, You're no longer a poor 20, 30-something uh, trying to make it in the uh, fast world of role-playing games. The fast and violent <laughs> world of role-playing games. One time at Gen Con, Robin Laws walked up to me with a roll of quarters in his fist and just hit me for no reason. <laughs> kidding, kidding, of course. <laughs> he had an excellent reason. Um, but, yeah, um... I don't know. It it seemed like maybe I, you know I'm I, you know as as I got older and my moods and intentions changed and the the culture shifted around me. I'm like, do we really need some new negative thing telling people that the world is shit and the reason for it is humankind. I'm like, you know, people seem to have picked up a... People seem to have that message internalized pretty firmly without my help. And so I don't want to... I don't want to waste everyone's time telling people something they've already heard. And uh, so I'm like, so I need to keep it Unknown Armies, but I need to have it be something... I, I, I need to give the people something for their money and attention. And there needs to be a payoff. And I'm like, and, you know, what if the empowerment here is not a personal selfish empowerment of, oh, well, you know, now that I have magic, my enemies will pay. But more of a, now that I understand how things work, I can attack some serious problems I see. And I put that front and center with... Cam's idea of cabal and setting generation. The highfalutin answer to that is that, you know, I, I wanted people to feel, the, to, to share the idea that, no, you know, it's not hopeless. You might, you, you can do things and the doorknob won't just fall off in your hand if you try to open a door. Uh, the more solid, selfish reason is, uh, you know, the the ego-driven reason is I got tired of people asking me, well, Unknown Armies is a cool setting, but what do you do with it? And me having to say, oh, so in this, I'm like, I am just gonna hammer down the idea that what you do with it is up to you. In Call of Cthulhu, you are trying to stop unspeakable forces from doing something. But in this game, you are the unspeakable force. You are the disruptor of the status quo. You are the punk revolutionary on the on a potentially cosmic scale. So that was the ego-driven selfish reason. The, you know, like profit-driven selfish reason is people will probably like it better if they feel they can get things done. And, you know, that, that was what I'd seen from playing the game is I'm like, people want to accomplish things. They don't just want to slog around in a morass of misery 
and and victimization. They want to they want to improve their lot. They are fed up with the way things are going wrong, and they want them to go wrong in a, in new and exciting ways. So that's what I tried to build in because that's what I was feeling. Makes sense. It does, um, and also ties into our question about um, where the corkboarding came from, because uh, corkboarding does seem to represent um, making it your own in that way. We like corkboarding so much, we just do it for fun on its own sometimes, without even making a campaign out of it. That was just one of those things where I'm like, oh, haha, wouldn't this be neat? And then it turned out to be really, like, wow, this worked a lot better than I would e- had even dared hope. And part of it, again, arises from, you know, nothing's new. It, it's You can see the over-the-edge DNA running centrally to, through unknown armies and uh, in over-the-edge. They had you uh, draw a picture of your character because, you know, people like images. And then Everway, where you picked out images and said, okay, here's what this is and what this means. And I really loved playing Everway. And I loved that part of its character generation. So I'm like, well, instead of, you know, obviously we don't have the art budget to to do this like Wizards of the Coast did. But, you know, now, whenever Way first came out, there was no Google image search. So, you know, Flickr was just a dream. It was just a gleam in a tech bro's eye. Now you can find all kinds of amazing imagery online. And, you know, for your personal use, say, okay, this is... This is where the cultists meet. And, you know, this is the abandoned McDonald's that's our headquarters. Here's the building that's reputedly haunted. And once I had the idea that, okay, we're going to be doing images, well, you know, the corkboard thing is so iconic and you see it everywhere. Uh, You know, it's gotten to the point that I'm watching TV shows and as soon as someone starts their conspiracy, starts it up, I'm like, ah! They're preparing their Unknown Armies game. <laughs> Look, the characters in Inside Chat play Unknown Armies. Look, the characters in Daredevil play Unknown Armies. That's really great. Yeah, because corkboarding, to me, it just makes third edition. Yeah, um, absolutely. There is, like, it's interesting to see debates sometimes happening among UA fans who are more fans of the previous rules versus the new rules. But I think corkboarding has pretty much won over most people because, as you say, being able to make it your own is invaluable. And yet, corkboarding, as much as I love it, is also the bane of my existence because the number of times I end up with a corkboard and I'm like, what do I do with this? What is that? They have put meth gators on the board. What do I do with that? Oh, I don't have that problem. It's like (laughs) when I'm initially building a campaign for pretty much any game, sort of that creative spark that pushes me forward is something I spent a while grew up and around for. And with corkboarding, I never have that issue because I get an immediate sense, this is what players want out of the game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's such a great little free association engine for my mind to draw from. Well, and I mean, it's it's part, part of it is just how gaming has developed is we talk about this on on Ludo Narrative Dissidents, is whenever we review an older game, there is this assumption that the players and the GM are antagonists, right? That they are at su- that that they are not pulling in traces and that they do not disagree, they do not agree on how the game should go, which hasn't been my experience. 
And I'm like, if you trust players to tell you the game they want, they are much more likely to be invested in the game you make. If you, mm. you know, if they bring the ingredients, they are much more likely to want to eat what you cook up. And mm. so the the antagonistic, I mean, there's still certainly elements of antagonism between GM and players because they are trying to, they identify with their characters and are trying to get them uh, into to better places. And my job is to make things hard on those players. But again, this was something I, I addressed in third edition when I'm like, okay, when you are prepping the game, that's when you should be antagonistic. When you are at the table, you should take off your antagonism hat and put on your I'm these I'm this game's biggest fan hat. And you know, because that was just what I found myself doing in between games. I'm like, oh man. Johnny's going to be so messed up if Beth shows up alive. But then once the actual session starts, I'm like, oh, how's Johnny going to handle it when Beth shows up alive? I can't wait to see Johnny handle it because it's going to be great. And that, you know, that's a very positive uh, uh, shift back and forth. It's, it's a fun way to get all sides of the situation. And, uh, you know, what I've been feeling more and more in recent years is that what tabletop role-playing games do best, do better than any other form of entertainment, is wildness. And that stuff that, you know, where earlier I mentioned, I'm like, I never would have thought to blend Frasier vibes into Termination Shock, but the players did it, and it was perfect. Uh, and, you know, there have always been these moments of, I did not think that X was going to happen, but it did. And sometimes these arise from the dice where you're like, oh, I would not have had Reese's dad deliberately murder him, but the dice turned up a one, that slim 1% chance of, oops, I guess he nicked a jugular vein. Damn, sorry, Reese. I'm really going to miss you. But the stories that arose from Reese's death were really rich and cool. Hmm. So to get into the uh, another rules thing that we are a fan of from third edition, oh boy, uh, the coercion system. Ah, is that taken from somewhere? Is that like a Stolze original? That's pretty much a Stolze original because, well, a little bit of it is uh, it's a a little bit of a development from a dirty world. Uh, I wrote this noir game called A Dirty World that I'm really, really happy with because it does everything the same way. And it's like, okay, if you want to argue someone around intellectually, it is handled the same way that smacking someone around with a hammer works and the same way that pleading and begging and making an emotional appeal works. And in fact you can slide from one technique to the other seamlessly. So I'm like, I don't want there to be one subsystem for, you know, one set of rules for how combat works and one set of rules for how everything else works. Although games do that, and if it's a conscious choice, it usually works pretty well. I'm, I'm thinking a Lancer here, right? But I'm like, yeah, I what I don't want is for that to just be hand-wavy. 
Uh, Unknown Armies, to me, is a very character-focused game, and I always want your choices about your character to be sacrosanct. Because in many, and I'll expand on the the wildness thing, because every now and again, a character, a player will make a, a choice I never thought they would make for their character. And I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure you want to just murder this guy in cold blood? You know, and they'll sometimes they'll say, well, maybe not. And sometimes they'll say, yeah, I'm doing it. I got the red thirst. And... In the old antagonism mode, the temptation would be to say, well, no, you can't murder him and come up with some flimsy reason why, because, you know, you're the hero and I don't want your character to be that way. Or, you know, oh, no, the city guard has shown up and, you know, the cops are going to prevent you. But but no, I'm like, okay, no, you've got to have the right to, whether it's a colossal mistake or a huge change of character, it's your it's the player's choice and if you don't want the players to make jack moves you what you need is not a role playing game but a dollhouse so you will never escape the players throwing in wild shit you didn't expect so you might as well get into it and enjoy it cuz you will never escape it uh to get back to the coercion rules yeah it's like i want to be able to put pressure on characters and say, okay, yeah, if you don't do what he wants, you are going to have to pay this price. But maybe you would rather pay the price than sell out. Uh, and so, you know, that that was it. I'm like, I, I don't think you should be able to make people do things, but I do think you should be able to pressure people towards things because that's my experience of how life actually works. Yeah, it makes sense. And it's one thing I like about the coercion rules other people have brought up as well is um compared to say delta green and a problem some people have with delta green is that often the solution to the problem is to roll firearms um that's <laughs> a, that can be an aspect of how people run the game but people get uh well that yeah that is not necessarily the case but it does come up but one advantage of Ananamis is that you have all these fun mechanical options for getting people to do what you want not involving necessarily pulling out a gun or browbeating someone although you will be browbeating if you're using yes. coercion but still it's this variety to it it's more the kind of coercion you encounter in your everyday life when someone's like come on i really need you to help me move and you really don't want to help them move but you also really don't want to deal with them being pissy because you didn't help them move you know to to give a very quotidian but understandable example I'm reminded of um, my character uh, that I have in a campaign that has been running for a while who has the identity of bad influence, which coerces self when he goes <laughs> like, come on, you're not the kind of guy that'll do that, come on. Or co and the other one is coerce helplessness. It's like, oh, if you don't do this, something terrible will happen to you. For me with yep. coercion, what I found, like it's the best subsystem I've found to kind of provide a little bit of rule scaffolding to role-playing without just bogging it down and turning it into, like, its own combat system where it's like, aha, but I cast dismissive witty retort in response and all that sort of shit. <laughs> okay, well, that's really nice to hear. Um, I had not I had, I had, not thought of the coercion rules, rules as anything super-duper special, but, you know, I was very close to them, and so, yeah. 
maybe I just missed their charms because familiarity. So it's nice to hear they've worked so well for you. All right. How many more questions have we got here? Um, I've got, yeah, just we've got this one that I like to touch on um, oh. because we noticed that in first or maybe second edition, there were, there were a few small mysterious mentions of a group called the Autocopulentus that in third edition got fleshed out. <laughs> Did they ever? Um, we were sort of curious like about what other unfleshed out things could exist and also like what how how long was there like a document about the auto floating around that was kind of fleshed out. I think Ordo Corpulentus showed up first in second edition in one of the rumors. And for the rumors, we were just we were just spitballing. We were just throwing crazy stuff. And again, this was the wildness, right? It's like these are because they're rumors, because they are not canonical, we could just throw anything out there, you know? And and so we could do all kinds of wild, crazy riffs and some of them are funny and some of them fit the setting really well and some of them you're like, I'm 90% sure that can't be right, but wow, what if it is? Uh, and I'd had this idea, I think I came up with the name and the idea that, you know, okay, what is the Unknown Army's take on, like, obesity? And, and you know, and this, is a, this is a sensitive subject, and I have become more sensitive to it as I've, you know, learned more and more about people saying, okay, you know, did you know we live in an extremely fat phobic society and there's a lot of abuse that accrues on people who are of a certain size? And, you know, I might do it differently now, uh, having been exposed to people who are just speaking out about, yeah, you know, you can't just say this shit and you can't assume that because I'm big, I'm in bad health, which is something I didn't assume because I've known people who are thick set and, you know, have a little, you know, have a little extra flesh, but they run marathons and are in better shape than I've ever been. So I'm like, yeah, you know, there are plus this fat is just one of the sizes people come in. But, you know, the idea of the Ordo Corpulentus, A, you know, I'm like, okay, let's play with the cannibalism taboo. And let's play with the idea of, you know, the fat cat, the guy who, what kind of person would deliberately become obese, knowing, you know, not only the health risks that may, that it may entail, although again, there are some fat people who are healthier than I am, uh, and knowing that you will always be seen as a fat person. And it's like, okay, yeah, in, in exchange for joining this mystic conspiracy, you will be rich and you will have ghosts who are your literal slaves and you will be successful because you have this edge on everyone else. But the price you pay for this is, you know, you're a cannibal and also people are going to look down on you. So that that was the Ordo Corpulentus story. And, you know, other stuff like that, it might be that I'll look over second edition and look over my rumors file and find something that was, you know, a cool sentence 
10 years ago and go like, oh, I know exactly how I could turn that into an entire friggin' book now. Uh, like a few of but, our episodes are like yeah. that. We're just like, hey, what's this one reference? Let's talk about it for an hour and a half. Yep. Uh, because, uh, you know, when uh, an IP, like all gaming IPs must be, is open to the creativity of outsiders, it's... You know, you can do that. You can find the one little thing and inflate it into a huge, giant thing of your own. Uh, it's like fan fiction, right? Um, fan fiction is just doing that, but you can't get paid for it because someone owns the sandbox you're playing in. I actually had a big talk with my, my daughter about fan fiction recently because apparently that's all she reads anymore. And, you know, she's like, well, you don't like fan fiction. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Fan fiction's great. And she's like, I thought you looked down on fan fiction writers because they're not professionals. And I'm like, look, I've read some fan fiction that was deeply moving. There's a brilliant fan fiction out there about uh, Superman's mom and time travelers coming back in time to kill baby Clark Kent and every time one comes back, she learns a lesson about how she has to raise him if the world is not going to be worse off for having Superman in it. It's brilliant. Uh, and so I'm like, you know, fan fiction is giving people characters they love that they can put their own spin on. And I'm like, and to be a writer, to, to write a whole novel from jump... You have to invent the setting or you or research a real life setting and you have to invent all the characters and you have to come up with all this stuff even before you write the first word. And not everybody has those skills or wants to develop those skills, but they still want to tell stories about a character and write dialogue in that character's voice. And why should they not? Why should you have to know how to do everything before you're allowed to do anything? So, yeah, put me down as pro-fanfic. Well said. It's interesting about being a writer is because you do put in all that energy into developing the character and the setting, but at the end of the day, it's going to be different in everyone's head. Not people aren't imagining the same place. Every reader is going to have their own, it's in their own internalized mm -hmm. version of the story is going to be different. I, I, I agree 100%. The work of fiction does not exist. It's not... It exists between the writer and the, the reader. It's, you know, half of it is what I put down, but half of it is what they p pick up. Which is terrifying when you think of a terrible person reading your work and being like, ah, yes, this confirms my belief in white supremacy. Or, ah, yes, you know, this com this is this guy gets it. He understands that women are inferior. And I'm like, what? I never wrote that. A and this is not a problem I've had. People have not come up to me and said, oh, yes, uh, I think your work supports this thing you actually oppose. But it's probably only a matter of time. Your work inspired me to eat my gardener. <laughs> 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 Good one. <laughs> I'd be flattered by that personally. <sighs> yeah, yeah, you hate to see it happen. All right, so yeah, there it is. There are there are thousands of loose ends left dangling off the uh, the oeuvre of 
Unknown Armies, and every one of you listening should feel free to grab one and yank it in any direction you want, because that is 100% what they're there for. So, there it is. Permission from me for what, which you did not need because I could not stop you anyway. And hell, if you told people no, certain people would be even more encouraged to do it anyway. <laughs> could could you tell me now, Mister Stolson? It'll <laughs> it'll make the transgression more exciting. So, kind of speaking of all this, uh, what inspired the whole Statusphere and Drive Through thing? I think you guys were some of the first people to have a sort of fan repository for all that. That wasn't me. That was nephew. Oh, well, good on him. He's like, this worked really well for D and D. We should do it, and that way we won't have to run the risks of printing a bunch of books that may or may not be good so yeah that was just his answer to okay so you know the supplement mill model which you know watsi makes work very well and which uh world of darkness pioneered where it's like okay we're gonna put out something every month or every couple months and so there will always be the new hotness to buy and if your ip is big enough that at any given month, you know, 10% of your people are buying something and that's enough to make your nut and hit your break-even point, that works fine. Although it does lock you into having to have reliable writers and having to have editors who will make them be reliable and it locks you into sometimes having to privilege putting something out on time rather than have it be perfect just the way you want it. If you're big enough, that model's pretty good. But people come to expect it, even from games that are so small that it's unsustainable to ask them to put something out every month. There just aren't enough writers, there aren't enough people buying it. The audience is too small to support that much material. But people still want it. And so Statosphere is John's end run around the paradoxes of that. It's like, okay, if people want to make stuff, they can make stuff without having to jump through the hoops of getting Greg and two Johns to say it's okay. You can just do it as long as it's not, you know, as, as long as it falls within some pretty broad parameters of acceptability. And then if you make money on it, well, then you'll probably want to do it more. And great, people have more stuff, writers are getting paid, but the publisher, in return for not making the money, the publisher is not putting in the work. And, you know, John would rather put his work in to products that have a higher rate of return than a supplement for minor tabletop role-playing game. So it's it's presented as win-win-win. The only person who really doesn't win in this situation, it's me and John who aren't getting residuals off stuff we didn't write. Uh, you know, that's that that's the real scene where you can really cream off other people's work, right? Is is that, you know, oh, you're working in my IP, therefore a percentage of what you write accrues to me and is my belonging. And I you know, we probably get some small piece of the statusphere action but i feel like the statusphere action is small enough already so that's that's where that came from is that that is was mostly a business decision i think it's also 
a good decision that is nice for people who want to write their own stuff and nice for people who who want to buy stuff. Uh, and, you know, so it's the best kind of business decision where it's like, oh, yeah, it turns out doing the right thing is also the profitable thing. Got to embrace those when you can find them. <laughs> it's definitely good for... Well, people, like looking at the Statosphere board, um, the like the hottest community titles. It's like, hey, it, it's just people I know and me, <laughs> other, like six out of ten of the top ones. That's because gaming's a small <laughs> scene. I mean, that that's how it felt when I was starting out. It's like, oh wow, look, everyone I know is in everything I buy, uh, and you know, you'd, you'd occasionally see these new names, and you're like, oh, who's the, who's this Gareth Hanrahan person? Who's this? Is this a new shark in the tank? Great. <clears throat> one of us. One of us. Gobble, gobble, gobble. All right. We're come, We're past two hours now, I think. Should we be wrapping this up? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I'm all out of things to ask you, at least for now. Nothing else is burning a hole in my well, head. Thanks for having me on. and Yeah. And congratulations on three years. Thank that you. is an accomplishment. Thank you so much. Thank so. you. Do you have anything to shill? Anything to shill? Um, well, Termination Shock is, uh, you know, there's nothing new out, but man, I love that game. Uh, Dueling Fops of Vindemir is very non-Unknown Armies in that it's fantasy and it's GMless and it's a plays differently every session. It's a, a one-session play thing. You can't have an ongoing story, but it's really fun. Uh, I've never had a, a bad game of it. Uh, I can tell you what I'm working on right now is a, a new horror game called Dying Breath, which I'm like, hey, am I dumb enough to set a game in, in the 1920s and go head-to-head -head with Call of Cthulhu? Oh, turns out I am. So, uh, you know, Tynes was talking earlier about, well, Lovecraft just created a new mythology. And I'm like, what if I did that? Uh, so I'm, I'm working on the new mythology of Dying Breath. And at some point, I hope to have that out. So, yeah. Start, so, yes, it, if y'all could start building up anticipation for that, it would help <laughs> me out a lot. What? Well, give us the elevator yeah. pitch for Dying Breath. Um... It is the 1920s, and there, uh, there is an occult mystery to solve. Uh, and the 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 main, yeah. You see, I haven't I haven't boiled this down to a, a snappy uh, one-liner because I'm not good at at back cover text and advertising and boiling things down to snappy one-liners. But uh, dying breath is. One of those games where I think it'll be a better experience if you go in knowing nothing about the mythology and learn through play. But it's... I'm, I'm trying to position it, like, halfway between uh, Call of Cthulhu and Unknown Armies in terms mm -hmm. of humanity's place in the cosmos. All right. Interesting. All right. I'm playing the first game of it, uh, the first ever game of it now. I've got uh, a session tomorrow, and yeah, so far it's going well. So watch for that in, I don't know, two years. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right, looking forward to it. All right. 
talk to you later. And thanks for having me on. Thanks so much, Greg. Thanks so much. she left was two months old. I hadn't tried to contact home in four. The agency has rules about these things.